If you are listening to this, this is actually a re-recording of a message uh, that I had done on December 29th. Unfortunately, we had some technical issues, so we are re-recording this for you today. We are wrapping up the series here on A Thrill of Hope. We will be spending our time in Revelation chapter 5. If you have your Bible around, you're welcome to open it up to that there. As we've mentioned before within this series, a revelation was written during the reign of Domitian in the Roman Empire. Now, we're not entirely sure why, but closer to the end of his reign, he began to persecute Christians in the city of Rome and Asia Minor. Uh, the exact reasons for this persecution are lost to us, but we do know that Domitian was a man who craved unity for his empire and to monopolize power through culture, politics, and religion. All things that would have put Christians at odds with him. They would have been viewed as a threat. We also know he had a significant hatred towards Jews, who at this point in history were often uh, put in the same category as Christians John was a victim of persecution himself during this time, being exiled on the island of Patmos. He would have seen many of his friends killed during the persecution of the former Emperor Nero. And he would have also been wondering if this new age of persecution would have been just as, if not more, severe. Nero persecuted Christians as a scapegoat, but Domitian and emperors that would follow him persecuted for the purpose of power and eradication of potential threats. During this time, John has been given a vision in Revelation surrounding a central figure. During this Christmas series, we've spent our time getting a peek into God's throne room to witness a scene that would have given John and his readers at this time hope that they desperately needed as they face intense persecution and are being prepared to read some truly terrifying events in the following chapters. But I believe that that's why this scene in Revelation exists and is so important. God wants to make sure that before we go any further, we have our eyes clearly fixed on the one the Revelation is all about. This is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see, as we pick up in this scene, a story where John has now seen this lamb that is worthy to take the scroll. And he describes him as having seven horns and seven eyes. Horns would have been considered a sign of power uh, during the time that John wrote this. And seven, the idea of completion or perfection. This means that this lamb that Jesus is shown to be, that he has complete and total power. And the eyes, the eyes would have been viewed as having knowledge or wisdom or omniscience. And again, with that number seven, perfection, the idea that this lamb, he sees all, he knows all. He sees our struggles, but he also has power to do something about them. And we are reintroduced to these four creatures uh, and these 24 elders with some new descriptions added on to them. In one hand, they hold harps. Now, this would have been a symbol of joy and worship. 
often used within this type of uh, setting. And the idea here is that these beings in this moment exist for one reason and one reason only, to bear witness to the Lamb's authority and to worship Him. In the other hand, they hold golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Never think that your prayers don't matter. Your prayers are seen as precious and valued in the eyes of God. They make a sweet aroma that fills up his throne room. These are prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of of praise and worship, prayers of hope, but also prayers of longing, prayers of crying out to God, to make things right, to bring justice where there is none. And what we see throughout this entire vision that John experiences is that the time of answering those prayers is coming. It's coming soon. And they sing a new song. It's considered a new song because it is surrounded on the reaction of this lamb taking up the scroll, this scroll that no one else was worthy of taking. The scroll that now shows that the plan of redeeming God's creation can continue on. The deed to all of creation, this lamb, this savior, Jesus Christ, is worthy to take that scroll. And so they break out into the first of three songs. This first song specifically discusses why Jesus is worthy to take up this scroll. It picks up there in verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is worthy because he was slain. In complete and absolute power, he willingly chooses to die for his creation. And his blood is a ransom for many. He purchased a debt. He bought us through paying a debt that we never could. And more importantly, it's not just that he ransomed believers, but he ransomed them for God. We were bought by God for God. And this extends to every tribe and language and nation. Jesus' redemption stretches out regardless of any people group. This would have been incredibly encouraging for John to hear in a time where he is wondering if this persecution is going to extend further than any other so far, a persecution that so often be designed to quell any hint of rebellion, to eradicate any threat. Is this the end of the church? And in this moment, John hears, no, John, this is not the end. The church will persevere. And then the song goes on to say that we will reign. Now this is a reference to the millennial kingdom. 
There will be other opportunities for us to dive into this further as we continue on in Revelation, so I don't want to get caught too much into it now, but there's one key point that I want to bring out here, and that is this. We were bought by God for God for a purpose, to reign. Your existence is not an accident. It's not meaningless. You have a part to play in God's story. And this worship that we get to see here is centered fully and completely on Jesus. It's not about anything else. And following that song, John suddenly notices thousands upon thousands of angels Myriads upon myriads, literally tens of thousands times tens of thousands. The idea here is that it's more than John can even count. He doesn't even notice they're there until they start joining in singing. Until they begin to worship this perfect, worthy lamb. It's this idea where these angels are joining in what these four creatures and the 24 elders have begun with. The vision zooms out where we see all these angels, but the central figure is still completely on Jesus. Where the first song talked about why Jesus is worthy, this second song speaks on what Jesus is worthy of. It begins in verse 11. John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The truth is, it can be so easy for us to just glance past this list. See this list of qualities that describe Jesus and then quickly move on. I think part of the reason why that's so tempting for us to do is because it is hard to imagine that anyone is truly worthy of everything that's being described in this song. It's hard to picture with the experience we have of authority figures that let us down time and time again. None of us could think of anyone in the past or present we would be comfortable giving complete power to. No one would be worthy of this quality or any of the others listed here. It's almost impossible to imagine saying to some saying someone is worthy of these things because our experience we have in flawed leaders has taught us to be skeptical. But Christ takes each of these qualities and shows us why he is worthy to receive them. He used his very power, that perfect and complete power, to humble himself, to walk as a man, to die for our sins and conquer death itself. He is worthy to receive power, but with this power, he is incorruptible, just, and merciful. He's worthy to receive wealth, but with this wealth, he is extravagantly generous. 
He is worthy to receive wisdom, but with this wisdom, he leads his people with care. He is worthy of might, but with that might, he carries out his good and perfect will. He's worthy of honor, but also honors those who humble themselves. He's worthy of glory because he fights for his people. And he's worthy of blessing, but his cup overflows to the needy. He's worthy. He's worthy of all of it. To the point where the question changes to, is this one truly worthy to be worshipped? Why should we worship him? And instead the question changes to, why would we not want to worship him? But there's a third song. And in many ways, I like this one the most of all because it shows us that genuine, delightful worship is contagious. Read with me in chapters 13 and verses 13 and 14. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The scene zooms out even further. Suddenly, John witnesses creation all above, in, and around, and under the earth, worshiping the Lamb. I believe that John is seen even further into the future, because we even find out in, in some of the following chapters that not everyone on the earth is worshiping Jesus in this moment. But there will be a day where that will be the case, where anyone that has breath will breathe out in worship of the one who is worthy of all of it. And it even has the same explanation here that we see earlier in this chapter where they are looking for anyone who could be worthy to take the scroll and open it. And they look for anyone who might be above the earth, on the earth, or under the earth. But none of them are worthy. And we see that same description here of people worshiping. Those who are unworthy to take the scroll are worshiping the one who is truly worthy. Now these these creatures all echo much of the same praises that the angels had referenced of the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. But there's one difference. That very a last praise, might. It's actually a different word. We don't recognize it always because many of our translations uh, use the same English word that we hear uh, from what the angels sing. But it actually is a very different word. In this song, the Greek word there is kratos. A more accurate description of this word would be dominion. In this moment, we are given a reminder of Christ's dominion over creation before we move on from the throne room. A reminder that he is worthy, but also has the right to all of creation. 
And that's an imperfect, imperfect image. And that is an important image for us to keep in mind. Especially with some of the chapters that will follow. See, there are going to be some scenes that happen following in this letter that frankly are going to seem scary. But God gives us this picture of his power on the throne first to remind us of his ultimate authority. Because part of his role is to bring justice. And we have a confusing relationship with justice. We want justice when we are the victims of injustice. When we see injustice around us, we want to say, God, would you please come and fix this? But when we're the ones that create injustice, it's so easy for us to want to excuse it away. To say that what we've done isn't nearly on the same level of evil or wrongdoing as others. When I was a little guy, my dad would have me uh, clean my room sometimes, as any good parent would do. And I would go through the process of cleaning my room, and i reach a point where I would decide it's clean. I'd go to my dad and i tell him, Hey dad, my room is finally cleaned up. My dad would follow this statement up with two questions every time. The first question he would ask is, do you think it's clean? Of course, dad. Yes, I think my room is clean. And then he would ask the second question, because my dad is a very wise man. He would ask, would I think it's clean? And that's a very different question. And suddenly I would begin to think about all of the toys that I hid under my bed and crammed into my closet that if my dad were to look at them, he would decide it's not clean. It didn't matter what my definition of clean was. His was the only definition that mattered. It does not matter what our definition of wrong is. The only one that matters is the one who has authority overall of creation. And so we are given this picture of a God that is absolutely powerful and has absolute authority, but also is ultimately in control. You see, Jesus is returning to reclaim what belongs to him. And so creation's only proper response is to fall down and worship. And you and I, we are being invited to this worship as well, to worship the one who is truly worthy. But that leaves us with a problem. As we leave the throne room, we find our still, ourselves still stuck in a broken world. How could we possibly have worship as if we were in a throne room when we live in a broken world? How can we worship when we face so much pain and sorrow? Many of us probably even had this struggle as we were celebrating Christmas. Where what should have been a time of laughter and joy and remembrance of Jesus instead was a reminder 
of that empty chair as the family sat around at the dinner table for Christmas. A reminder of that horrible news that you heard for yourself or for a loved one called cancer. As you grow weary and tired at seeing loved ones struggling, how can we possibly worship when we're surrounded in a mess like this? Of course, John, it can be easy for you now. You've gotten a chance to see this incredible scene of God on his throne and all of creation worshiping him. Of course, it's going to be easier for you now. How can we possibly worship when we haven't seen that throne? How can we possibly worship when we are surrounded by darkness and pain and wreck? I struggle. I struggle with this view myself. But if I can make a suggestion from my own experience, I think this perspective is wrong. You see, I'm not entirely convinced that we haven't seen God's throne room. In fact, through reading this passage, we have experienced this throne room. God had John write it down for us. In this scene, we've been taught that our prayers are precious to God in his throne room. We've been reminded that we have a conquering Savior that has faced and defeated the worst that this world has to offer. This Savior has been proclaimed worthy over his dominion to take back what belongs to him. And there will come a day where he will make all things right. With Christmas, we weren't simply just celebrating a baby in a manger. We were celebrating an event of the rightful king coming down in an invasion to take back what rightfully belongs to him. And he is worthy to be worshipped in a thrill of hope of what is to come. The fixation in this entire moment is completely and entirely on Jesus. And we get to have an opportunity to see it play out in what we read. But also, in God's goodness, we catch glimpses of his kingdom here in this broken world. In World War II, as Hitler was doing his best to rise to power, he made a point to gather up art wherever he possibly could. And he would hoard it with the instructions to his military that if ever uh, that city was to be taken, that they needed to destroy all of the artwork that had been gathered there. The idea being that if Hitler and his group were not able to have it, then no one would. Now, there were a group of men during this time who had caught on to what was happening, and they had the belief that even if we were to win the war, if we were to lose all of our, all of our culture, that would be absolutely devastating. 
So they took it upon themselves uh, to make a point to go into these cities as things were being cleared out to reclaim a lot of this lost art. Eventually, there was actually a book written on this uh, called Monuments Men. You may be a little bit more familiar with the movie by the same name. But in that book, there was a letter written by one of these men named Walker Hancock that he wrote to his wife. I'd like to read a, a part of that here for you. Walker writes, How can I describe the strange, strange combination of experiences each day this beautiful place brings? The eyes have one continual feast. It is late in the spring. Flowering trees are everywhere. And the charm of the romantic little towns and the fairy tale castled countryside is enhanced by all this freshness. And in the midst of it all, thousands of homeless foreigners wandering about in pathetic droves. Germans in uniform, mostly with arms and legs or more missing. Children who are friendly, older ones who hate you, crimes continually in the foreground of life. Plenty, misery, recriminations, sympathy. All such an exaggerated picture of the man-made way of life in a God-made world. If it all doesn't prove the necessity of heaven, I don't know what it means. I believe that all this loveliness showing through the rubble and wreck are just foreshadowings of the joys we were made for. Our worship is meant to exist through our lives. What if we focused on the joys and glimpses of God's kingdom rather than the pain and sorrow? How would that change what our worship looks like in our life? Too often, too often, we have this tendency to only stare at the rubble and the wreck. And the truth is, many times, it really is ugly. It truly, truly is. For many of us, when we look back on 2019, it was a bad year. It was just a bad year. No getting around it. A year filled with pain. A year filled with wreck. But what if, what if we did have a perspective change? Because you see, worship, it's not an event. It's not something that we go to on Sunday. We don't go to worship on Sunday. We live out worship. We worship in plenty of ways. We worship through song, like we even saw here through this passage. We worship through our obedience to the one who is worthy as we acknowledge his authority and dominion. As we recognize that no matter what pain and wreckage we see, that we can catch glimpses of his kingdom shining through. 
reminding us that we were made for something more, that we were bought by God, for God, for a purpose. And if we can do that, then we also get to worship through inviting others to rejoice in the overwhelming power and delight of God as we invite them and say, come, join us as we delight in the goodness of the Lord.